Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, it is the women's retreat, and I have three little boys at home, and my wife is on the retreat. So, someone knew me well enough to bring me a coffee, because this is precisely what's needed for days like today. Uh, if you want to know what 41 women uh, in one photo, uh, tell me what that looks like. Yeah. <laughs> them. Uh, they're having a great time on the retreat. From what I understand, um, Darlene, she's one of our elders. She is actually leading the retreat. She's that one right up there. That's her. And uh, she's leading a great retreat, and I think the women are all having a great time and learning a lot. I want to say to you, uh, good morning. Look at that off there. She's not looking at it. Let me say to you, good morning. We are uh, week two of our series for the winter. It's called Rooted. We started it last week, and here's the basic deal. God wants in us, God wants for us, for faith to grow. Whether you're someone who believes in God or not, whether you have a faith to speak of or not, that's what God wants for you, for your faith to grow, for a faith to grow, and uh, for it to mature, and over time, for it to grow something like a tree, and a tree would grow and it matures, and then eventually it bears fruit. It bears fruit in the world, and that fruit makes a difference. It makes a difference in your life, in the lives of the people around you, it makes an impact in the world. That's what God wants, for our faith to be bearing fruit. But for our faith to be bearing fruits, it must have roots. And that rhymes. Um, it must have roots that are deep down into the soil of who God is. So that when hard things happen in life, when there are cold seasons or when there are hurricanes, it's the roots of your faith that will keep your tree alive. Because they're rooted and, 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 and fed by who God is. And there's nutrition when there's no nutrition. And there's water when there is no water outside. So we need roots for our faith to grow like that. There's perhaps no question more important in growing healthy, deep, strong roots than the question that's going to occupy us this morning. Um, and it's this one. It's who is God? Who is the God whom we have faith in? Who is the God whom our roots grow into? Who is the God who is calling forth this fruit from our lives? I probably don't need to do much to convince you that the answer to this question uh, determines a lot. You're, you're probably here this morning, at least in part because of the way that you've answered this question. Uh, you might do the things that you do or not do the things that you don't do because of the way that you've answered this question, right? Um, the way that we answer this question makes a difference in why we do things. Some of you might be uh, somewhere else this morning, if not for the way you answer this. Some of you might be um, not alive if you didn't answer this question a certain way. Uh, the way that people answer this question takes very extreme forms, right? On one hand, you have one of the craziest, most extreme forms. The way they answer this question makes them think the right thing to do is to fly planes into buildings, or blow up abortion clinics, or protest outside of funerals of, of soldiers and homosexuals. You know, God is this way, God hates that. That's one extreme of what the answer to this question is. <clears throat> On the other side, there's an extreme that is uh, people like you and me who live in an area like this with wealth and with comfort and with um, all of the things that we need, we can leave all of that behind and move halfway around the world and give our lives to people who don't have enough. 
who don't have access to medicine, who don't have access to clean water, whose only food that day is going to come from a garbage dump. All because of the way that this question is answered. Who is God? And for most of us, our answer kind of leads us in the middle. right? We're not doing extreme things one way or the other. Um, but this question for you, maybe you answer it in such a way where it's like, God, God just wants me to be happy. And so whatever I need to do to make myself happy, that's who God is and that's what I'm doing. And that's where your life is. For some of you, maybe you answer this question and it's like, God has deeply disappointed me. The things I wanted, the things I hoped for, God hasn't come through, and now I'm frustrated with God, I'm angry with God. Maybe God is so disappointing to you that you just don't believe in God any longer. We answer this question in all different ways. It's interesting to think about for a moment, and I bet a lot of us never think of this. It's interesting to think about how we come to answer this question. How is this image of God that we have, how is this formed in our mind? For many of us, um, it's formed uh, from our childhood. The way that we're raised, right? Our parents either explicitly or implicitly teach us a little bit about who God is. Maybe they were people who had a strong faith in God, and they taught you, this is who God is. Maybe not, though. Maybe your parents implicitly taught you by the way that they did or didn't go to church, or the way they did or didn't um, care about rules or right and wrong, or the way, or way that they didn't like, have faith or not have faith, and that all teaches us. For a lot of us, we answer this question uh, from the past religious communities we've been a part of. Maybe you grew up in a different church. Maybe you grew up in this church. Maybe you grew up in a temple or a mosque or something like that. Maybe you're someone who grew up on the outside of that, looking in at those communities. And that's what shaped your image and your answer to this question, who is God? For a lot of us, it's a mix of these kinds of things. Of course, also with uh, just kind of what we catch from the air, right? What we get out of culture. Because if you turn on Oprah, for instance, Oprah will give you answers as to who God is. And some of it is good and some of it is really not so good. Um, if you're friends with people on Facebook who are quote-unquote spiritual, you will get spiritual memes in your Facebook feed all of the time. And some of them are good and some of them are really not so good. You'll hear about who God is from from movies and from TV shows, from what you read. Um, and we sort of catch it, and what happens is, what happened in our childhood, the religious communities and experiences we've had, what we hear, it all kind of gets shoved together in this image of who God is. Um, and for most of us, we never really reflect on it. When I was a kid, I grew up in a different kind of church, and we went to this church like two to three times a year. We went on Christmas Eve, Easter, and then whenever I had to go to like church school to grow up in the church, that's when we went. And for me, the image of God I had growing up was that God matters for about 45 minutes a week. 50 minutes on a really bad week. Right? And the rest of the week, it just it has nothing to do with me. And what God seems to care about at that place was um, God cares about church and church things. And the church building and church people and the smells that the church candles make. And the smells that church money makes. Um, that's what God cares about. And so I could put that totally aside. When I was in church school, when I was a kid, uh, about 10 years old, I think I just watched Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Remember this? Remember? Yeah. Good cheer for T2, right? Um, uh, <laughs> the beginning scene in that movie, if you haven't ever seen it, it's like a nuclear holocaust, right? It's a wonderful opener. But it's like a nuclear holocaust. And, for me, that was the end of the world, and somewhere I heard that God brings about the end of the world. 
So the question that I had for my church school teacher was, what about the end of the world? I'm afraid of that. I don't want the world to end. I'm only 10 years old. I got a lot to do. How is the world going to end? Is it going to end? What she said to me was she said, this is the way the world is going to end. Um, as long as there is someone on earth who is praying, God won't bring about the end of the world. So once the last person, once they stop praying, that's it. The world will end. That's when God will bring about the end of the world. Now, you might not be biblical scholars. That has that's nowhere found in the Bible. I don't know where she got that from. I, don't, I can't even believe she actually said that. But that's what I remember. And that, that one experience shaped my own sense of who God is. Like, for a little while. And I was 10 years old. I'm thinking to myself, I have 60, 70, 80 years left on this earth. Um, there's a lot of people who pray, right? We're not going to run out of them by the time I die. So therefore, I don't have to worry about God. Other people have got this. Someone's praying. There are actually priests and pastors and rabbis and stuff who get paid to pray. So I don't have to pray. I don't have to do anything with God. That's what I got. And um, for me, what it did was, for one thing, it made God seem like a joke. It made God seem kind of silly. Like, what kind of God would care about? That seems like a weird thing to care about. That's how he gauges the coming Holocaust. Like, that's strange. It made me think, wow, God is weird and he's disconnected from, like, from, like real life. And it made me also think, you know what, maybe God isn't actually real. Maybe that's just something that the teacher says and that, like, the church said in order to make us pray and whatnot. However we come to those kind of images, and your story might not be as kind of bizarre as mine was, um, but we all come to them, we all have different ones. We all have these images, maybe yours is something like a distant God who set the world in motion, but then kicks back with his feet up and watches it, watches it do what it does, right? For some of you, if you're doing Rooted in the groups, you might have read this week, God might be something like a 911 answering service. Where like, if there's an emergency, you pick up the phone, you call him, and someone comes to rescue you. Maybe God is like a vending machine. When's the only time you use a vending machine? When there's, when there's no other food available, right? You go to the vending machine, you put your dollar in, you type the number in, or pull the lever, and out comes what you need. Maybe we act, we treat God like that. For others, God is like a police officer holding a radar gun, just waiting to catch you, go too fast, or make a wrong move. For a lot of us, especially in this culture, God ends up looking something like Santa Claus, right? Um, good guy, loves us, wants to give us good things, but it's up to you whether you receive good things or not. Because he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So if you're good, for goodness sake, right? Um, there's a list, naughty list and a nice list. Uh, if you're on the nice list, if you do good things, at the end of everything, right, you'll get a big reward. You'll get presents. If you're bad, if you're on the naughty list, you will get coal in your stocking. And that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way God works. Um, <clears throat> however we kind of find, find these images, though, what ends up happening with them? Think about it. What ends up happening? Um, as life gets hard, as you grow up, how do these images fare? How do they do? How do these images leave us? I think the answer is they leave us wanting. Because when your spouse or when your father or mother comes down with terminal cancer, what is that image of God going to What's that going to do? 
How's that going to help? When your child is faced with something that you as a parent don't know how to face and how to help them through, how is your image of God, how is God going to help? When the pursuits that you have in life, whether it's for money, for just success, or just like community, whatever your, whatever your pursuits are, when those kind of run out, when the bottom falls out, is, is, is the God who you thought of, is that God there for you? Usually our images of God just leave us wanting. And what happens is we grow. We grow out of them. For some of us, we grow out of God. Right? We find out that these images don't work, and so we grow out of God, and we turn away from God and live our lives without God. For some of us, we grow out of them, and we grow into whatever Oprah tells us God is. Right? Or whatever our friends tell us God is, whatever Facebook tells us God is. For some of us, we grow out of them, and what happens is we grow angry. We grow bitter that the 911 call doesn't actually work anymore, and the vending machine gives us Nilla wafers when we wanted a Trix bar. And Santa doesn't seem fair anymore. For some of us, though, we don't grow out of it, we just live with it. And for those of us who do that, it's no wonder our faith is not inspiring. It's no wonder we struggle with who is God in the midst of this. It's no wonder that um, faith doesn't work the way it should. It doesn't excite you. It doesn't inspire. It's no wonder that faith isn't bearing fruit. The thing about Santa Claus is I'm sure you don't have the same image of Santa Claus today that you did when you were a kid. Right? As you grow, as you mature, your image of Santa Claus matures. The problem with our images of God is that as we grow, as we mature, they might not mature in the same way that our image of Santa does. And we're stuck with an image that worked when we were kids, or worked when we didn't know any better, or worked when life was easy, but they don't work now because they're not true now. For those people, right, we grow out, we grow away from it, grow up, we don't care about God, we leave it behind. The hope is that for all of us, and our hope is for you, for this this morning, that you grow to want something better. That you grow to want your image of God to actually make sense, and to actually be um, based on like reality, rather than what you've heard or what you've been um, shown. And what's distinct about the Christian faith, about us, is that we believe that God ha has not left us on our own to figure this out. But that God has shown us definitively who he is. And he came in person to show us. And that person is the name of Jesus. And he continues to show us through his Holy Spirit that speaks through the words of Scripture. And before all of that, he showed us by the way he, de he, he dealt with, he interacted with, he cared for uh, his people, for Israel. For the Jewish people. So this morning what we're going to do um, is look at one of the very first stories of the Jewish people before they were really informed, as they were being formed. Because this story, we believe, uh, shows us the heart of who God is. Shows us what God's greatest intention is uh, for all of humanity. It uh, shows us a little inside scoop into who God is. And it comes it comes in the book of Genesis. Genesis is the, is, is the first book in the Bible. Uh, and we're going to go back to it, and, and the story that we're going to look at is actually probably one of the very first stories ever written about God. It takes us back to a man named Abraham. You might have heard that name, Abraham, and this story he goes by Abram. 
And let me give you Abram's backstory. By the way, because he's known as Abraham, I'm sure to call him Abraham rather than Abram by accident. Just deal with it. Um, <laughs> so Abram. Abram's a guy. He's just a guy. He's living in a land called Haran. He's got um, a wife named Sarah. Sarah's issue is that she's barren. She can't have children. Um, that's really painful and it's horrible today. It's maybe even more so then. So they have no children. They don't know God. These are not people who believe in God. Uh, they believe in all kinds of gods and whatnot. One day, out of nowhere, out of the blue, God comes to Abram and says, Abram, I want you to follow me. I want you to leave the place where you're living now. I want you to come after me and follow me to a place, I'm not going to tell you where, but to a place that I will show you. And listen, I will give you children. In fact, I'm going to give you a huge family. In fact, I'm going to give you so many children and children's children that you won't be able to count them. In fact, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. In fact, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. And Abram's like, good deal. <laughs> right? It's an easy one. So they get up and they leave. Him and Sarah, they get up and leave. They take their stuff with them. And they go and they follow. And what happens? Not a lot. They kind of wander around. They go to Egypt. They come back. They kind of do some things. They lie a little bit. Um, they come back. But nothing is happening. There are no children. She still is not pregnant. And they're getting old at this point. No children. Um, God promised land. They're wandering around other people's land. So what's the deal? Abram starts to wonder in his heart, in his mind, when is God, like, when's he going to come through on this? What's happening? And so what happens is God knows this, and so God speaks to Abram. He says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And that's kind of ancient for, don't worry. I'm still with you. Stick with the plan. I got this. You have nothing to be afraid of. But Abram responds the way you or I would totally respond. He said, God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. You've given me no offspring, and so a slave born of my house is to be my heir. Back in those days, if you didn't have a son, uh, your like, slave or your servant would inherit all of your stuff. Abram's saying, God, I, I hear your promises, but what's the story? How come you're not coming through? Where is this child that we're waiting for? So what God does... Um, he brings Abram outside. It's nighttime. Uh, thousands of years ago, there's no light pollution, expansive sky. It's a clear night. He brings him outside, and he shows him the stars of the sky. He says, Abram, look up. If you can count the stars in the sky, that's how many descendants I'm going to give you. Children, your children's children, that's how many. You can't count them. Abram is blown away by this. Maybe he was a sucker for starry nights. But he believes God. He believes God. A day goes by. Maybe a few days go by. Abram's starting to feel again in his heart. Wait a minute. The children I get, what about the land? When's the land coming? God knows this. God speaks to Abram. He says to him, uh, I am the Lord who brought you up from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Abram, again, eh, doesn't quite believe it. Maybe it wasn't as spectacular as the starry night. Um, and he asks him, he asks him this question. He says, but Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How am I to know? That's a great question for any of us uh, who are waiting for God to speak. who are waiting for God to deliver on a promise. This is a question we've all asked. How am I to know? 
What's behind this question is even more brilliant, though. Because what's behind this question is, God, you have led me this far. God, I have left my family, my home, to come to this place. I am doing this on great faith. You have given me great promises, fantastical vision of the future for me, for my family, for the entire world. And yet, I see nothing of it. God, are you going to make good on your promises? Can you be trusted? Are you someone who does what you say you're going to do? What kind of God are you? That's what Abram's asking. What he's asking is, who are you? And that's exactly the question that we're asking this morning. God, who are you? What kind of God are you? And God's answer is not any starry sky, nothing like that. Instead, he has Abram do something. And it's a weird thing. He has him bring him a bunch of animals. He says to him, bring me a heifer. That's like a little cow. Three years old. A female goat. Three years old. A ram. Three years old. A turtle dove and a pigeon. Young pigeon. What is God looking for? Does he want a sacrifice? Does he want a meal? Is he starting a very early petting zoo? What is, what is God looking for? We might not know what God is looking for, but Abraham knew exactly what to do. And so Abraham does it, and this is where it gets really weird. He brought them all these, and he cut them in two, laying each half over against each other. He did not cut the birds in two. No one knows why the birds weren't cut in two. Could be any commentary in the world. No one knows. But Abram cut these animals in two, probably, listen, from long ways, from top to bottom, slicing them right down the middle. It's a lot of work. We don't know what he's doing. Abram would have known, because this was a, a, a well-established practice back then. Um, he was making, God was making with Abraham what's called a covenant. Um, a covenant is probably a word that you know of. It's really an agreement between two parties. Uh, it's a promise that's like a binding promise. It means something if it's broken. It's like a contract, but it's not as like legal and sterile as a contract. Um, but it's a promise that two parties make between one another. Archaeologists have dug up tablets uh, from this era, from this region, where this sort of covenant thing was like talked about. And this is the way it worked back then. You had two different parties. Um, usually it was two armies or two people who were fighting, who were in a battle, or who were in a war, or who were going to be in a war. And what happened usually was you have one party, the superior party, the one that, you know, kicked butt, and then you have the other party, the smaller, weaker one that lost the battle, or that knows if it ever gets into a war with those guys, it has no chance. And what would happen is the two leaders of these parties would come together, and they would make an agreement. Now, the leader of the stronger, superior party he got to set the terms of this agreement, um, but they made an agreement, and the basic agreement was this. It was, we will not kill you. We will not destroy you and take all of your stuff if you continue to give us the best of what you've got. Um, the best of your money, the best of your women, the best of your livestock, the best of your slaves, the best of your land, whatever the case may be. And if you continue to give us those things, we won't kill you. And that's the way that these covenants more or less worked. And um, the weaker party, the one that lost the war, they had no say in the matter. They had to just kind of agree to it. They had to kind of sign to it. The animals come into play uh, because they would cut these animals down the middle, and they would separate them. They would 
kind of like this room right here. They would separate them and create an aisle in between it. And what would happen is um, the leader of the stronger party would walk the leader of the weaker party uh, down the aisle. Or maybe the entire army would be made to walk down. Or maybe the entire people, like women and children and all, would be forced to walk down the aisle. And they did that in order to put it in people's minds that if you break this covenant, that's what's going to happen to you. If you turn your back on this agreement, we will cut you into pieces. If you don't give us the money that is required, if you don't give us your best women, or food, or wine, or land, or livestock, we will slaughter you. If you run away, we will chase after you and slaughter you. If you go to another nation to try to get strength, we will slaughter you and them too. This is gruesome. This is tough stuff. Um, this is gory. But also, this is really effective. Because what person is going to walk down this aisle and not think to themselves, gosh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it together here. I'm going to do my part of it. Is this what God is like? Is God this serious about transgression? About people turning his back, their back on him? Is God this serious about sin? It seems, it seems like it. It's no wonder why what happens next happens next. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. A deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Abram is seized with terror. Could you, I mean, could you imagine this? Abram knows what's at stake here. God is God, and I am just a human being. Of course I'm going to mess up. Of course I'm going to turn my back on God at some point. Of course I can't hold up my end of the bargain. And to make it worse, it's not just me, but it's my wife and my as-of-yet unborn children and my children's children and all of the families of the earth, all of them who are included in this covenant, if any of them mess up, this is what's going to happen to us? It's no wonder Abraham is seized with terror. This deep, terrible darkness comes over him, and he goes to sleep. I imagine in his dream, he's, he's dreaming, is there a way out of this? Can I run to a different place? Can I find a different God? A God who is a little more gracious than this? Can I renegotiate the terms? Can I go back to, to Ur and just be a shepherd? This is what is going on in Abram's mind. And while that's happening, while that's kind of going around in there, before he had a chance to wake up, this is what happens. One of the strangest things to ever happen in the history of the world. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Before he even had a chance to wake from his terrible sleep, when he was still paralyzed with fear, out of the darkness, a light shines and walks down that aisle. A fire pot and a flaming torch. What is this bizarre event? On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. That's God. God's presence. God's very person walked down that aisle. And what has God done? God ratified this covenant by himself on Abram's behalf. God 
the superior power has agreed to take responsibility for the inferior power when it fails. God, the superior power, has taken the place of the weaker partner. He has signed the deal on both lines. It is God himself who agrees to take on the curse of the covenant if Abram breaks it, if his descendants break it, if his children's children break it, and now included in, if, if all of humanity breaks it. God agrees to take on that curse. God agrees to pay the penalty for that transgression. God pays the price of their sin, of our sin. God agrees to be killed. He would give his life in return. He will live under the threat of being torn in two. That is strange. It's weird. It can't be true. This must just be symbolic language. Because what sort of God would do that? Fast forward a few thousand years. Jesus Christ is nailed to the cross. He's being hoisted up. That's God himself. On the cross, we believe. Jesus Christ is nailed to the cross. He is struggling to breathe. The life is running out on him on that Roman torture device. And listen to the way Luke describes this. If you've been reading the Bible with us, you just read this on Friday. It was about noon now, the middle of the day. And darkness, a deep and terrifying darkness, came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. While the sun's light had failed, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus, God in person, dies in the same terrifying darkness that Abram fell asleep in. And at this moment of death, the temple curtain is torn in two. Do you know what the temple curtain was? The temple was the place in Jerusalem where God lived. It was like God's home, something. And in the middle of it, in the, in the inside of the inside, is where God actually like, dwelt. And people couldn't go in there, because that's where God lived. And the only thing that separated God's presence from the outside world was this thin veil, this curtain. It literally contained, held back God's presence. The moment that Jesus breathes his last breath, God dies on the cross. The curtain is torn in two. Matthew tells us it's torn from top to bottom. In that moment, the covenant that God ratified on Abram's behalf thousands of years before is paid in full by God himself, by the death of Jesus on the cross. It's fulfilled in Christ. We ask, who is God? This is who God is. Yeah. The God who gives his life so that you would never be lost. The God who would rather die than go on without you. The God who set this world in motion only so that he could guarantee that you were never lost. The God who stopped at no lengths to win us back, to reconcile us, to heal us, to get us uh, in his presence. The God who went to hell and came all the way back to save us. This, this is who God is. This is who God shows himself to be. And the question that this brings up for us, the question is why? Why would God do this? 
Why would God set this crazy plan in motion? Why would he do this? And the answer to the question of why is also the answer to the question of who. It's because God is love. Because God loves. That's why. Because God loves. Because at the center of God's being, at the center of God's heart, overflowing from inside to out is love. Overflowing love. And get this logic, okay? Uh, if God is love, overflowing love, what's the most loving thing he could do? What's, what's the most selfless, the most self-giving thing he could do? It's to create someone over here who could benefit from the love that is overflowing in God. It's to create someone who could live in and enjoy and receive and benefit from who God is. And so God creates a world for you and I to live in. The world is the theater of God's love. <clears throat> and he created you with the intention of being the object of his love, to being the recipient of his love, to living in his love, um, to working in his love, to being in the presence of his love, to being surrounded, to being filled with his love. This is what God's intention is for you and for me and for everyone. This is why he created the world. He's so overflowing with love that he created us to enjoy it, to receive it, to live in it. It's what Abram's story, it's what his story is all about. That he created this, and then he did everything necessary to make sure that nothing can take you out of it. That nothing can take you out of his love. That no transgression, no sin, no turning your back on God can ever separate you from the love of God found uh, in Jesus Christ. It's what this story is all about. It's what the story of Jesus is all about. This is who God is. If there's a broad brush that pays God, this is it. And let me ask you, how does your image of God match up with this image? Think about the vending machine or the 911 call or the police officer. Does your image of God fit with this image of God? Is your image of God challenged by this one? People don't generally like to have their images of God challenged because there are images of God. They kind of work for us. We've lived with it this long. Um, if you think about that, though, it's absolutely ridiculous that any one of us could stumble upon the right image of God from all of the things we've experienced as if everyone else in the world is wrong and we've got it right. That's ridiculous. The truth is, God routinely and regularly, and he set it up like this, God comes to us from outside of ourselves to challenge our images of him, to show us who he is again and again. And we, we, we believe he's done that definitively in Jesus. That's why we read stories about Jesus. We believe that he does that still through his spirit. We believe he did that uh, through the way he dealt with his people, Israel. And we believe that it's all kind of captured for us in scripture. It's why we call it God's word. Because God comes to us through scripture to show us who we really are. Or who God really is. So the challenge, well, there's two challenges. The first one is, if you don't believe this is who God is, please believe it. Please receive that image of God, because that's who God is. I mean, my telling of it is just one telling amongst many in Scripture, but it's a pretty good brush. Receive the love of God if you've never received it. That's one challenge. I can't make you do that. That's only something God can do. The second challenge, though, you can do, and it's this. Don't hold so tight 
on your beliefs about who God is, or your image of who God is. Be willing to be open uh, to being challenged by who God is, of who God is. Um, take time to work on that. Reflect on it. What is my image of God? Where did it come from? What image of God am I living under? Um, I might believe one thing about God, but what does God actually mean for my life? What would be forced to change in my life if I believed in God differently? Do I have the courage, do I have the humility to change that and to live differently? Um, your challenge is to think on that, to work on that, to meditate on that, to pray on that, to see <coughs> That's what we're doing together. Um, it's why we're doing the rooted groups like we are, uh, to seek an answer to that question. If you're doing rooted in your groups, you've already worked on that this week. That's one of the things. One of the other things I'll say, and I'm glad that Brian mentioned it before, um, is God is found in Scripture. He presents himself to us in Scripture. So read the Bible with us. Tomorrow's a great day to start. We just finished the Gospel of Luke. It's all about Jesus' life. Tomorrow we start the book of Acts. Acts is about um, what happened after Jesus died and was raised from the dead. And Jesus is in it, the Spirit's in it, God does amazing things, it's really challenging. Um, read the book of Acts, and every day say to yourself, in today's reading, who is God? In today's reading, who is God showing himself to be? If you're adventurous, in today's reading, how does this image of God challenge my image of God? And how does it challenge me to live differently? Um, read the book of Acts with those questions in mind. Warning, on Friday, there's a really weird story that will need explanation. And if you know, was it Acts 6? If you know that story, you'll get it. Um, check the website that day for a blog that helps to clarify why on earth God would do what he does on that day. Um, here's the deal, though. If you're ever looking to answer this question in a way that outgrows the way we did when we were kids, or what we learned in this sort of uninformed, unformed understanding of God. If you're ever um, looking for the real, true God, start seeking Him now. Start that work today. Start that work tomorrow. Uh, because God is faithful to show Himself to us. He is. He's faithful to show Himself to us. And it's why we gather like this week after week. It's why we gather in groups to talk about this together, to try to learn together. It's why we teach our kids the way we do. We teach them right out of Scripture so that our kids can be formed with a really good understanding of who God is. And we're committed to this as a community. Um, we don't take our own images of God and bring them all to the table and then expect to deal with one another on our crazy ideas about who God is. But we are committed to continually seeking who God actually is and what God is actually saying to us together in community so that we might be able to reflect the true God, the living God, the loving God into this world that so desperately needs to know him and who God so desperately <coughs> wants to know. So this season, this winter, the invitation is to uh, get your roots to grow. Get your roots to grow, not into the version of God um, who you dreamed up, not to the version of God who we found, not to the version of God that Oprah tells us about or that we grew up with, but the version of God who actually appears in the Bible. And let your faith be firmly planted so that fruit could grow. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for uh, 
showing yourself to us. We thank you for this story of Abraham and for what you did with him those thousands of years ago, no matter how crazy it is. Even more so, God, we thank you that you paid the price of this covenant in full for us on the cross. Lord, show us what that means, that you allowed your body to be torn in two so that we might have life. Lord, thank you for scripture, and we pray that through it you would show us who you are. Thank you for sending Jesus to show us, to love us, to be God with us. Thank you for your spirit who is continually with us to speak to our hearts in ways that we can't speak to our hearts. We pray that you would speak to our hearts like that now. We pray for Park Church. We pray that as a community, we would be committed to, to, to always seeking you, to putting ourselves under your word so that you show us who you are. We pray that in groups, that our groups would grow and that in them, relationships would form where we could finally get to know our Redeemer uh, as he actually is. We pray for us as individuals. If there is rocky soil in our hearts that needs to be broken up so that roots can grow, we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would give us the humility to put aside our images um, that just don't work, or that our images that we want to protect out of selfishness. Give us, our, give us the humility and the courage to put those images aside so that we can get to know you and who you really are. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you came for us, and uh, thank you for paying the price on the cross, for paying our debt, for taking on the curse to set us free. And as we sing the words of the next song, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <laughs>